Hey, good morning, everybody. For those of you who may not know, my name is Jason Lalone, and I serve on the lead pastor team at Park while being anchored in here at my beloved Rogers Park. And today we're going back to the book as we continue our study through the letter to the Romans in which we are in week three of a 10-month study, expecting God to do wonderful things through the power of his word. So if you have your Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And we're going to be in verses 18 through 23. If you're using one of the house Bibles that you got on the way in, it's going to be on page 547. Page 547. And as always here at Park, if you're a guest here with us this morning and you don't own a Bible or you need a Bible to give to someone, please take one of those house Bibles as a small gift from us. We are so glad that you're here this morning. And as Lee said, we invite you to stay after and share a meal together with us. Now before we dig into our text, Jamie kicked us off in verses 1 through 15 declaring that the gospel is our recipe for missional unity. That's what we order our lives around as we work together for the gospel in our community and also other faith communities here in the city. And that the gospel isn't merely good advice, but rather it's a good news announcement that the king arrived, that he did extraordinary things, but then he died on a cross, he rose from the dead, He is reigning with all authority and he is set to return. And through that announcement, people by faith alone and the king alone are being brought into his everlasting kingdom from every tribe, every language, every people, and every nation. And as Phil followed last week, we're not ashamed of that good news because it's the power of God unto salvation from the first moment you believe until you drop and go to the reward. Where your faith will be made sight. But the question looming over us this morning is, why is this good news necessary? What's the good news got to do with me? And Paul's going to pull the rug out from us a little bit this morning because if you know Paul and his writing of Scripture, you would think that after sharing the good news of God's awesome saving power that he would throw up a prayer or sing a song of praise. But instead, he helps us to see that for the good news to truly be good news, we have to talk about the bad news. Because we got a problem. And the problem for us is that God is angry. Would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's word this morning? Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools 
and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Let's pray. Father, your word says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus that we're to preach the word in view of his coming and his kingdom that the admonition is to preach the word that we're to be prepared in season and out of season that we're to rebuke and encourage and exhort with great patience and gentle instruction And Father, I ask, Lord, that you'd have your way in your word, that you would do that this morning, that you would correct, that you would rebuke, and that you would encourage this morning, that you would get our thinking right so that our thinking is lined up according to your word. And that, Father, through that this morning, that we would see and savor Jesus more than we ever have. And that by your spirit, that you would work in our hearts, Father. That you'd do a work in our hearts in all sorts of ways. Hundreds of ways throughout this congregation. And forming us and shaping us more and more into the image of Christ. Give us a sense of urgency, I pray this morning. That's been my desire, Father, as you know, throughout these last week or so. Give us a sense of urgency. Not only to share the good news, but Father, the urgency to know you more. Be our help, I pray this morning in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. This is a difficult text this morning. This one for the last few weeks has not um, been light for me. It's weighed on me particularly particularly heavy. And so I just want you to know that up front. And I want to give us an exegetical statement which will guide us through our text. An exegetical statement, what I mean by that is what do we draw out of the text? Not do we come with our ideas and look into the text, but we want to take God's word and we want to draw out what the text says to us, not our own ideas. And the statement that I want to use that will guide us throughout the text, and I'm going to answer some questions along the way, is that God's anger or his wrath, I'm going to use both of those words interchangeably, is being revealed because of our rejection of his revelation. God's wrath is being revealed because of our rejection of his revelation. Let's begin with verse 18. For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. First, what is God's wrath? Now when we think about God's attributes and character, we can easily limit our categories. It's good for us to keep in mind that God is loving and patient and that he is kind and he is merciful, but he is also angry. And I know for some of us that is difficult to digest. And I think there's a lot of reasons for that. And I'm going to give a few of them. Number one, when is the last time you heard a sermon on God's wrath? I mean, I had to think about that for myself as I was thinking of that question. I haven't heard Romans chapter 1 preached personally since 11 years ago. It was at Moody's, Moody Founder, Moody's Founder Week. Moody's Founders Week. <laughs> 
Most of the songs that we sing have a major focus on God's love. When we see the word anger or wrath or associated words in the Bible like jealousy and vengeance with God being the subject, that's like liver on the menu. We just skim through or skip those sections or even try to redefine the meaning. We don't give honest time necessary to really meditate on it, to dig in and understand. And what we do is we really begin to just create God in our own, own image. Making him to be who we are comfortable with him being. But God is not tame, right? And lastly, and I think this is more pointed for us, is that we may have a misunderstanding of what God's wrath is because we associate God's anger with our anger. Our anger often explodes from a place of not getting our own way and tends to be reckless and egotistical. And erratic. But God's anger flows from the holy throne of his righteousness and his justice. Those are the foundations of his throne. Righteousness and justice. He always makes the right decisions in his holy revulsion against that which contradicts his holiness. God's wrath, in its most basic sense, is his personal anger against sin. Because he is the creator and sustainer and ruler of us all, he is right in unleashing his wrath against all our ungodliness and unrighteousness. That is all of our religious corruption. Worshiping him the wrong way. And denying the one true God. And all of our nasty deeds and slandering words. And perverted thoughts and selfish motivations. Which deeply offend him first and foremost. And then cause havoc in our own lives. His anger is a good anger towards all of our sinning and being sinned against. But ours not so much. God's anger is a good anger. And if you really stop to think about it, if God didn't get angry about the mess in his creation, if he didn't do anything about it, then the truth of the matter is he really wouldn't be very good and loving after all. But because he is good and he is holy and he is just, he is not neutral. He refuses to come to terms with our sin. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just don't have a sideline chat and say, you know what, all just the boys down there, they're going to be boys. God's not just going to let it go. No way. We would never bend our knee to such a being. So whatever we do this morning... Let's not try to get God off the hook of his wrath. Because his wrath is good. Next, where is God's wrath directed? 
It's directed to men. It says it in the text, or humankind. That is everybody. Now, in the immediate context, it's going to become clear that Paul is addressing the Gentiles, those non-Jews that are without the law. That is the Old Testament scriptures. And this is just going to be a theme throughout Romans with the Jews and Gentiles. As Jamie shared with us, those who were made up the congregation in Rome. Yeah, well, also what will become clear is that when Paul addresses the Jews in the next chapter, God's anger is directed at too because they also have suppressed a revelation and they are disregarding something as well. But that's in a couple weeks. So God's wrath is directed towards an ungodly and unrighteous humankind. Why? Because they suppress the truth. They Push it away. But what truth, Jason? You just said in the immediate context, Paul's addressing those who don't have the Old Testament scriptures to even understand any truth of who God is or what he has said about himself. How can they suppress any truth they don't seemingly have? Verse 19, follow the flow of Paul. For what can be known about God, there are some things that can be known about God, is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that were made so that they are without excuse. People without the special revelation of God, that is without the scriptures, suppress, stiff arm, build walls up or hinder the truth by driving by and ignoring the billboards of God's marketing campaign in creation. Or in natural revelation. In other words, we should be able to see certain attributes about God all over the place in his creation. Everyone has seen, heard, felt, tasted, and perceived of him. The beauty of a landscape, he is delightful. The coming in and going out of the waves, he has an order of things. The fierceness of a storm, he's to be reverenced. Trees in the spring. He gives new life. The complexity of an eye. His wisdom is unsearchable. The immensity of space. He is uncontainable. And I know that we can just keep adding and adding and adding. This summer I was down visiting my mom in Clifton, Tennessee, which is a small town right in the middle of nowhere <clears throat> on the Tennessee River. Right in between Memphis and Nashville, population 2,600. 
with 1,500 of those being from the state penitentiary. They are clearly juicing the stats. <clears throat> the main tr- attraction is the Dollar General, a mile, mile, outside of time, uh, mile outside of town, where you run into people called Gator. Have you ever watched The Waterboy with Adam Sandler? <clears throat> if so, do you remember the assistant coach? That older fellow who kind of talked like this. Hey, how's it going? Hey, well, yeah, yeah, pass the football. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> he lives there. <clears throat> I am serious. <clears throat> I'm Matt Gator. <clears throat> Now, Clifton is a good place to live, but I wouldn't want to live there. So much so that sometimes I have to catch myself from not saying to my mom, why in the world are you down here? But every time I went to visit my mom, I catch a glimpse of the why. The landscape of those rolling hills Acres upon acres of green grass. She has a place on this giant hill. Winding rivers and creeks that the kids swim in. And the vast clusters of those trees is absolutely beautiful. And when you go outside and those stars are popping so bright where it looks like you can reach out and touch them, you have to know that you know that you know that there is an artist behind that all. And the power to hold all of that together, that is glory. So one night this summer while visiting mom, Lincoln Dillon came down with me, hanging out at my uncle's place. So I went outside and was going to get ready to take a walk. I said, hey, Lincoln Dillon, come outside. you got to see this. Look at what, Dad? Take a look up in the sky. You don't get to see this in Chicago. Look at all those stars. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that awesome? Again, in Chicago, you don't get to see this. And did you know this, that not only has God created every one of those stars, but that Psalm 147 says that he calls them each by name. Isn't that incredible? And then Lincoln and Dylan start naming names. <clears throat> Ralph. <clears throat> Vanellope. Felix. The Wreck-It Ralph characters, <laughs> who they were just watching before I got them to come outside and take a look. One of the favorite things that I love to do with Dylan is I love, we go outside and we just lay in the grass in the front yard and we just look up. He's snuggled up next to me. I can smell his hair and I can, he's so cool, I can feel his ribs. And we just look up to the heavens. And there's an artist behind it all. Here's where I'm going. 
we are without excuse in denying that there is a creator and sustainer of the heavens and the earth. Not even an atheist has ever said, I don't understand the concept of God. But due to our resisting of that truth, God is rightfully showing his anger. It's an affront not to acknowledge that is beautiful and incredible. Now I know that we got a lot of smart people in this room, much smarter than me. And you're saying to yourself, okay, so everyone has been given this natural revelation which points to a creator and a sustainer, but what if that's all that they have? They don't have a specific revelation of Christ in the gospel in order to be saved from his present wrath and the wrath to come. What becomes of them? And that is a great question. And after 25 years of following Jesus, seven years of theological education, talking to pastors and you and others from Michigan to Chicago to all over the place, talking about this question, I always keep coming back no matter what, to these two answers in one form or another. Genesis 18.25 Shall not the judge over all the earth do that which is right? Number two, we got to go tell him. We got to go tell them. The Bible teaches, which we're going to get to later in Romans especially, is that men and women cannot be saved apart from the proclamation and believing of the gospel. And here's one way that I think this tension and mystery works itself out. Ed Crawl, our awesome pastor serving at Breakers and West Rogers Park and South Rogers Park and all over Chicago. <laughs> he shared with me his story about coming to faith in Christ while he was back on the island in Curacao, which is where Ed is from, which is an island off the northwest shore of Venezuela. And he poetically said, as I was driving home from work one day, the heavens kept my attention. The sky was blue with a few clean white clouds hovering and scattered throughout. And the sun was bright shining like having dominion in the heavens. And I kept on staring. And I asked myself, who made this beautiful thing above me? But I never got an answer. That is until I heard a pastor preach about creation in Genesis chapter 1 in Psalm 19. And it was on that day I got the affirmation and clarity of what I had seen. Ed saw and God sent.
we got to have eyes to see this morning. As Ed describes his story, it's even so much more than he saw, but he stared. When's the last time you pulled over and just took a look? In all the busyness and craziness, time is flying by, living in the city. When's the last time you just pulled over and stared? Romans 10, 14, and 15. This passage isn't going to come to us until next year. How can they call upon the one they have not believed? How can they believe in the one they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they've been sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I get asked this question a lot. Jason, why all the mission? Mission, man. Y'all are talking about the mission. Always doing and going and what's up? You want to make disciples and tell people about Jesus and plant churches. Romans chapter 1. I understand, for example, of the mission in us first and foremost. But if the mission in us first and foremost, of us being more and more formed into the image of Christ, does not lead us to that, then you've missed it. If all the information dump of learning and learning and learning and learning doesn't cause you to share the good news with your coworker, then you've missed it. It's the first mission of us being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus and growing in the grace and knowledge of Him, knowing Him better. That leads to that. They're inseparable. Do you feel me on that? Okay. If a stunning revelation about God has been very clear in what he has made, giving us no excuse, how should we respond to this revelation? 
Because we got to respond to it, right? I mean, it's good to see something wonderful and majestic and know something or someone is behind it all, namely God, but that doesn't go far enough. Because you pay money to see the show. You clap your hands after the play. You speak tender words to your spouse because they're glorious. You go crazy when the Bears score a touchdown. That's a miracle. I'm a Lions fan, so I just throwing them out, right? I've been suffering for 44 years. You pay for it. You applaud, you speak affectionately, and you cheer on what's wonderful and majestic. You don't see something so delightful and marvelous and then just vomit on yourself. I thought of a lot of worse ones. That's gross. You're not, I'm not working with much here. But that's really what we've done. Verse 21. Just follow the text. For although they knew God that has had knowledge about him, they perceived him. They did not honor him as God or give him thanks. Oh, what's God ever done for me, it's often said. I've heard that more times than I can remember when sharing the good news. We were out last night doing it at Loyola. At the red line stop. Lee's doing a great job, man. Going out there, we're sharing the good news. Oh, what's God ever done for me, it said. He created you. Gives you your next breath. He's given you some good things. So at least all that. And what's God ever done for me, crowd? I know there's a lot of behind that, right? There's always hurt and difficult things that may have went through, right? That's just a response of something underlying and deeper, right? It's happening in the heart. That's where you want to get to. But what's God ever done it for me, folks, are like the kids going crazy at home, right? They rebel, they ignore your instruction, they fight you and call you unfair. But at the end of the day, the bills are still being paid and there's food in the fridge. Even if you don't see all of the good, there's still someone you should give honor to. There is someone worthy of at least a little bit of thanks In this case, mom and dad, in our case, God. And if we don't give honor and thanks to God, which is what it means to worship, or an expression of worship, then what do we give honor and thanks to? Because we have to replace them with something. Our minds are not religious vacuums. If there's an absence of what is there if there's an absence of what is true then there's going to be the presence of what is false. 
We talk about this a lot. We were made to worship. We cannot not worship something. It's impossible for humanity. We have to give allegiance to something, something that gives us identity and worth and meaning and direction. David Foster Wallace, a once very influential writer, novelist, and non-Christian, he picked up on this. He wrote, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough and never feel that you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start to show up, you will die a million deaths before they plant you. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will never, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart. And you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, and always on the verge of being found out. And he went on to say, and the insidious thing about this is that it is unconscious. They are default settings. Wallace described the human condition or the state of things for human beings as a daily crisis and chronic disillusionment. That is really good from a non-Christian. David Foster Wallace, at the age of 46, hung himself. So if we don't give allegiance to the one true God, then look at the second half of verse 21. We become futile in our thinking and our foolish hearts are darkened. In other words, we get deceived into nonsense and twisted thinking. Claiming to be wise, we become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We go from the highest, God the creator, to the lowest. 
created things that crawl on the ground. And we could add plants to the list. Thanks for JB helping me, uh, giving me this uh, last week. On September 18th, 2019, yes, 11 days ago, Union Theological Seminary, been there, seen that in Harlem in New York City, tweeted out this. Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer. Offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. And then there came this question. What do you confess to the plants in your life? In light of the harming of our environment and present climate emergency, just because plants can't respond, should we not engage with them? And then they sent out a picture of a student kneeling and praying in front of a plant. And they are dead serious. Union Theological Seminary in New York City, September 2019. And I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Even brilliant people, the most gifted intellectually, the standouts and influencers of society who don't honor God by valuing him above all things are fools. Whereas God's image bearers, such as tribal people in the Amazon who throw spears to catch their dinner, are infinitely wiser for having one day's worth of knowing that God exists in the person of Jesus Christ than any high-ranking intellectual. Especially the ones that question the existence of God. And are really fighting for that. No, he can't exist. Here's why. Here's my philosophy. I'm not sure if he does or not. We got all caught up into that stuff. But because the, the, the fancy rhetoric and the tickling the ears of the words and all of that, and we just kind of get lost in it because we're so like intrigued by the wisdom that's coming from them. It's good to get into that and to dissect it and have arguments and all of that, but don't get caught up in it, you know. God's word is wisdom. You want to be really wise and really smart? Spend a lot more time in the book. In the word, that'll make you wise. One of the great themes in helping us understand the storyline and epic of the whole Bible is the difference between 
what is true faith and what's idolatry. That theme just runs through all throughout the Bible. All sorts of other themes as well. I mean, we can list many themes. But one of the major themes that's introduced immediately is what is true faith and what is idolatry. That's very clear throughout all of Scripture. Idolatry is the most fundamental of sin. It's the breaking of the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourself an idol. All the other commandments that follow and that are broken is because of the breaking of the first two. So let's just basic. And I understand that in the West, we may not be bowing down to images, but remember our idols of replacing God is more mental than they are metal. Wealth. And the pleasure and the power and the huge one, individualism, faith in myself. I'm pursuing this. I'm gifted at this. I'm going to make an impact at this. I'm branding myself in this. And I've got this. And if I'm not recognized for this, then my world is shattered. And I'm going to shatter yours too. I'm going to bring down your individualism. And I'm going to make mine greater than yours. I love it that, that, that non-Westerners come to our country and critique our culture. I, I love to talk with Shine. <laughs> Phil, Phil's Westerner, but Phil's Phil, right? Phil's... <laughs> <laughs> There's so, such good, they always ask, why, why, why is it so competing all the time? Why is Westerners all, it's all about them and their thing. And they, you know, they, they just catch on to that. Why does everybody cut each other down here? It's an ugly thing to give yourself over to idols, especially the idol of self. Self neglects others. It one-ups others. It runs over others. It divides others. It competes with others. It discriminates against others. Because there is no other in worshiping self. And what's so terribly sad about this is that this stuff gets into the church. Churches can't work together. I feel God is being our help all throughout the city, though, in that regard. He's doing a great work <laughs> to some degree. We've got to keep working at it. I got my way of doing things. <laughs> but we've got to get this because individualism is contrary to how God operates amongst his people. It's all contrary. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all members of one another. 
We are all building blocks into a spiritual house or a temple where God is building this thing where his spirit dwells and does his work among us. And when that is happening, it makes visible the diverse excellencies of his glory and his gracious good news. This is not about I. In closing, and next week's going to be just as heavy. But we got to set it up, right? Going forward, because actually we don't actually get to the good news until chapter 3. I know it, I know, I know David, I know. What are some applications and implications for us in this text? What can, if you're just reading that, what can we draw out of that? We've got to be shaped by it, right? Number one, we too should get angry at sin. If God is angry about it, then we too should have a righteous indignation. We should love what God loves and we should hate what God hates. Doesn't mean that we're mean about it and rude about it and brash and unloving about it, but we should get angry about it. Idolatry is an affront to him and it leads people further and further and further away from him. You gotta get angry about that and upset. Number two, praise God for his wrath as it flows from his justice. Praise God that he is not passive and he just leaves things alone. Phil was alluding to this a little bit last week. We're not embarrassed by God's anger, but rather we're disappointed by our own lack of justice. And our own need to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. And that in our world, we let bad guys off the hook. Praise God for his wrath. Sometimes it's not in our timing that we would like. But man, I'm sure grateful that at least we know someone's going to be faithful to act. He's going to make it all right. Number three. Grow deeper. God help us. In our understanding of his love for us. That we should have some grateful agony and trembling of the soul when we think about God's love for us. When we sing, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me?
Number four. Have a great compassion for the situation and prospect of others. There should be some tears. Doc has taught me that. One hand on the plow and one hand wiping away the tears. Some years ago, a radio talk show host here in Chicago brought on a show four religious leaders, all kind of diverse religious leaders from around Chicagoland. And asking the question, is Jesus the only way to be saved? And the first three responders kind of ho-hummed it. No, there's other ways to be saved. You can do this and then God will show favor on you and then you'll, you'll be saved through that. So by works or uh, there's a plurality of gods. I'm not sure which God exists. And then the fourth pastor responded, Jewish Christian. And they knew this about his ethnicity going in. And so the talk show host had kind of baited him and set him up. And he said, so uh, let me ask you, you know, you're a Jewish Christian, Apart from believing in Christ, does that mean all Jews are going to be condemned to hell? And that Jewish Christian pastor began to sob quietly and uncontrollably. And after about two minutes or so, the radio talk show host said, I have never heard a more compelling reason to believe in Jesus. One hand to the plow, wiping away the tears. Which leads me lastly is that we have to be on a relentless mission to strive in prayer and bring the gospel to those who don't have it. Because here's the state of things. For those without Christ, the ship is sinking to the bottom of the ocean. And you are trapped in an enclosed room and the oxygen is running out. And because of the pressure of the deep, Water is now beginning to spray through the cracks and the room is ready to explode. And the only way that anyone can be saved from that explosive wrath is by trusting in the one who bore their wrath.
the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was nailed to the cross. Let's pray. Father, you are so good and kind and gracious and loving. Where you give us your precious word to speak to us about what matters in the world. It tells the truth of who you are and what you're doing in the world and who we are and what we've done. And that you are on mission yourself to write it. Father, I pray that we wouldn't have a flippant low-level understanding of the gospel. That, Father, before we declare the good news, we have to remind folks of the bad news, of the state of things, so they can see that they have a need. And that, Father, by our gospel proclamation of declaring the bad news first, followed up by the good news, is that you would find us faithful as your children, willing to suffer for that message. Because some people aren't going to like it. But Father, it is hard to kick against the goads. And Father, I pray, Lord, collectively through our witness at here in the Rogers Park Network, here and at North Rogers Park and West Rogers Park and Breakers, that collectively we would have one voice in proclaiming that gospel, that good news in word and followed up by deeds that say them got to be good news people because they're about doing good things. God, give us that witness, I pray. Continue to work that in us more and more and more. Mature us more and more. Grow us in the grace and knowledge of Christ more and more. Help us to pursue you and know you more and more. Even if it's not the cry of our heart this morning that the world has came in and snuffed out all of your goodness this morning. Bring it back in. Rescue us from our individualism, Father, and our petty pursuits. And help us to see the big thing that you're doing in the life of your people. It's bigger. It's bigger. And Father, we're not ashamed of that gospel. But we proclaim it in humility, in tears, in urgency. Day after day after day. Father, you are putting it on the hearts of some. I'm convinced this morning that there's somebody that they've got to go tell the good news to. Because today is the day. Today's the day. There may not be a tomorrow. Do that work in us, I pray, Father, as we get ready to sing together. In Christ's name.